The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Father, I thank you that you receive us just as we are. And Lord, I pray that if we arrive here today, and maybe it's been a while since we've been in touch with you, I thank you that you receive us. I thank you that you welcome us with open arms. Lord, as we come and we carry many things with us into this room today, Lord, I pray that we would lay those things down. And Lord, I pray most of all that you would speak to each and every one of us this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wanna thank you for the opportunity to share with you today. You may or may not know that we're in a series and it's titled, Loving the Other or Loving Others. And in week number one, Wayne, our campus pastor, shared with us how we need to love ourselves before we can love other people. In week number two, Erica shared with us what love looks like. And in week number three, Sean, I'll tell you why I'm grinning about that after the uh, service. Uh, Sean shared with us uh, that love needs to come first. In a me first generation, we need to be willing, even in the difficult circumstances and situations, to love other people. If you go to the post office or to the bank tomorrow, what are you going to find? It's closed, that's right. Somebody's going, oh, is it really? Why is it closed? Martin Luther King Day, that's exactly right. Martin Luther King was certainly at the forefront of the civil rights movement in the United States from about the mid-1950s until his assassination in 1968. And Martin Luther King wanted to bring equality to everyone, particularly to African-American population. In wanting to do that, he had to love others, and in order to love others, he was willing to cross some barriers or some boundaries. Martin Luther King certainly crossed boundaries. He crossed some uh, religious boundaries. He brought together people who were Protestant, Catholic, and Jewish. He said of Billy Graham's ministry that had it not been for Billy Graham and what he did, that his civil rights movement would not have accomplished everything that it accomplished. He certainly brought people uh, across racial boundaries. He led the march against the uh, Montgomery, Alabama bus system, the boycott, for over a year where people boycotted that uh, bus system. And so in loving others, we have to be willing to cross boundaries. It's on days like this that I think of uh, the environment that my dad was raised. My dad grew up in the segregated South. In 1951, when he was 16 years of age, he just stumbled upon and witnessed an event that no one, much less a 16-year-old young man, should have to witness. I grew up in the segregated South. Even though it was May 17th of 1954 when the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that school segregation was unconstitutional, it was not until January of 1970 that in Brookhaven, Mississippi, where I grew up, that schools were desegregated. Now, as a ninth grader, I didn't really notice much difference. I mean, I played sports. You'll have to take that by faith today. <laughs> You're laughing. No, <laughs> I get it. <laughs> And so we were on sports teams. I mean, you know, we just kind of came together and, you know, we, we worked as a team, we played as a team, and we were pretty successful as, as a team. And I'm not saying that there's not anything that didn't happen, 
that maybe as a ninth grader just kind of missed my radar because there's a lot of things that ninth graders miss, and I certainly might have missed something, but I never saw anything. We just kind of made it work, and it did work. Well, whether it's Martin Luther King bringing people together, whether it's people on sports teams coming together, is that in order to love others, we have to be willing to cross these barriers or boundaries. In the life of Jesus, I see that Jesus was certainly willing to cross these barriers. And we find one of those instances where Jesus crosses three barriers in John chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 4. Or if you have your phone, look on your phone or certainly uh, join me on the screen. In John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. And so he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Jesus had been in the southern region of Israel. He had been teaching and preaching and healing, performing miracles. His popularity had exploded. It had gone beyond the popularity of John the Baptist. And that caused the Pharisees to be very insecure. And even at this early time, they began to plot his demise. Jesus knows that it's not the time. And so he decides that he needs to go back to the north where he was raised to Galilee. And if you look on the map, Judea or Jerusalem is in the south, Galilee is in the north. The shortest distance between two points is a straight line. So that's the way he went. But that's not the way that most of the Jewish people, principally all of them in Jesus' day, they did not travel that route. So it's noon. It's hot. Jesus is hungry and he's thirsty. He sends his disciples into town for some food and he stops by a well. That well had been there for 1,700 years. Now, in our world today, that sounds, Jim, that's kind of hard to believe. As a matter of fact, a couple of weeks ago, Janet and I were at that very well, drinking that very, from the same well, pulled water up. And you can go there today if you want to go on one of Ecclesia's trips uh, to the Holy Land. You'll have that opportunity to go to the town of Nablus, which is ancient Sychar, and drink from that same well. Now, church is built over it today. It wasn't like that in Jesus' day. So Jesus stops. He's hungry. He's thirsty. His disciples go into town for some food. And here's where he crosses the first boundary. And it's the racial boundary or barrier. In, verse, in chapter 4, verse 7, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, why was it that Jews had no dealings with Samaritans? Back when the nation of Israel was liberated from slavery in Egypt, Moses led them out. They spent 40 years wandering around in the wilderness and Joshua leads them into the promised land. They settled this land based upon their heritage, their lineage, how they related to the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. 
Essentially, there were 10 tribes that settled in the central and the north, and there were two tribes that settled in the south. And they lived as a united kingdom through King Saul, King David, and King Solomon. When Solomon's son Rehoboam became king, he went to the north for his coronation ceremony, and they had rejected him. They had elected another king. So he came to the south, and he ruled over those southern two kingdoms. About 750 years before Jesus, the Assyrians come from the north, and they conquer these 10 tribes in the north. And they kill many people, they carry some back with them, and they open the doors for Assyrians to come in and settle the land. The Assyrians do that. They begin to interact and intermarry with the Jewish population that is left there in the north, and that's what establishes this Samaritan people. About a hundred years after that, the Egyptians come and do the same thing, conquer, resettle, infuse their people, and it further diffuses the gene pool. Well, later, about 650 years before Jesus, the Babylonians come and conquer the southern kingdom. You remember Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Many people are carried back to Babylon. They stay there for 70 years. Then Cyrus the king releases them, and they can return home. During that 70-year period, they became very convinced that they had left their, their warm heart for God. They had become cold. So they re-infused their enthusiasm for their Jewish heritage and their Jewish religion. So they come back. And as they travel through that land, they're looking at what these Samaritans have done, and they're just appalled. They just can't believe it how they would intermingle and intermarry, kind of turn their faith a little bit, with, infuse it with some other things. And so they, this is where this separation is further exacerbated. It started with the rejection of Rehoboam, and now that they have intermingled and intermarried and kind of turned their faith a little bit, is that the gulf becomes even more wide. To say that this was a very different type of environment is to be very understated. I'm sure you've seen it in your neighborhoods. I see it in mine during football season. There's the flag out there, you know, that's hanging for, here's Aggies, and there's a flag in another, you know, yard that says that these are uh, Longhorns. And then sometimes you see the divided flag, okay? Longhorns and Aggies. That's not something that you would see in a Jewish household. Okay, they just didn't do that. You know, in crossing this barrier, Jesus shows that he loved others. Prior to moving to Houston in 2004 to become the pastor of Memorial Drive Baptist Church, I served on the staff of First Baptist Church, Jackson, Mississippi. At that point in time, it was the largest church in the state of Mississippi. And so in 1996, in the spring, a couple came to me, Joe Lewis and Clara Oswald. Joe was a mechanic for a rider truck, and Clara had moved from Seattle in order to teach in an underserved area in uh, close to Jackson, Mississippi. And so they came and they asked me if I would perform their wedding, and uh, weddings are great, they're fun, they're interesting to me to watch the family dynamics, and it's just an exciting time in uh, a number of people's lives. So I said, yes, that I would do it. But I had this very tense feeling in my stomach when I said yes. 
You see, Joe was black and Clara is white. You say, well, Jim, you know, what's, I mean, you know, I see in Houston, that's, that's, you know, it's not uncommon. Yes, that's right. 2019, Houston, Texas, that's not uncommon. But this is 1996, Jackson, Mississippi, in a church where literally 30 years before, on the state, on the paper that went throughout the state that was owned by one of the members of that church, on the front page there was a picture of a member of that church blocking the entrance of an African-American family to come in and worship during the middle of the civil rights movement. Some of those people that were there in 1966 were still there in 1996. And I knew that this could possibly cost me my job. And that was important because I had a wife, I had two sons, I had a mortgage, and I liked to eat on a regular basis. So I went to our senior pastor, Frank Pollard, and I told him the situation. I said, Frank, here it is. And he said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to do the, the wedding. And he said, well, I'll tell you this, that if it causes you any problem, which I knew what he meant, that I have to leave, he said, I will leave as well. Now that gave me some solace because that would be like Jose Altuve telling the lowest person on the depth chart that if you get cut, I quit. We did the wedding. Here's a picture of Joe and Clara. This is not at the wedding. This is made this year. Joe and Claire are still there in that church where they serve, they love others, and people love them. Jesus was willing to cross a racial barrier for the sake of the gospel. I noticed that there's another barrier that Jesus is willing to cross in this passage. And he continues his conversation in verse 19 with this lady. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain. And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place that men ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seek to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At this point, this lady raises the most contentious issue of the day. And it's where to worship. You say, well, Jim, how, how is that? Well, she's doing what most of us do because Jesus had been probing her spiritual life. And as things became a little bit uncomfortable, she decided, well, let's chase a rabbit. Let's find some tangent that we can take. Let's do a side road rather than this direct issue about my spiritual life. And so she brings up this issue of the place to worship. Why was that such an issue? Remember, Joshua is going to lead this, the nation across the Jordan River into the land of promise. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, God tells Joshua exactly what to do. They were to go in and he said, I want you to go to this valley where there's Mount Ebal to the north and Mount Gerizim to the south. 
I want you to paint some rocks with whitewash and write the law of God on these rocks. Then here's some things I want you to do. It was like a responsive reading with millions of people in this valley. And then he said, I want you to build an altar and offer a sacrifice on Mount Ebal. And so that's exactly what they did. Well, the Samaritans, when they were interpreting this years and years later, they decided that it was not in Jerusalem where they should worship. It was, was not Mount Ebal, but it was going to be Mount Gerizim. They felt it so strong, they even built a temple on top of Mount Gerizim. But 128 years before Jesus, the Jews from the south came up and destroyed that temple. You can imagine that didn't do much for this separation between the north and the south, did it? Well, that's why she surfaces the issue. It is the same way today. You'll see a picture that just two weeks ago, Janet and I, and along with the others uh, from Ecclesia, the man that you see that Pastor Chris is sort of, you know, holding uh, the fist with, he's the number two priest for the Samaritans. There are 325 Samaritans who live on Mount Gerizim today, and they hold very strict adherence to their Samaritan interpretation of the Old Testament Jewish law. You know, today, denominations have distinctives, and I think those are good things. Churches have flavors, and that just gives variety to life. But I think that the issue comes about is that when everything is just not like we want it, or there's just one thing that's just not like we want it, we pack up and we leave. In 42 years, I've, been, I've served on six church staff. In three of those, I've been the senior pastor. In none of those 42 years has everything been done just like I wanted it to be done, even when I was the senior pastor. Now, that's not to say that we just wholesale forget everything that we hold true. There are five things that are non-negotiable for me. And if we can agree, me and someone else, can, if we can agree on these five things, then we're good to go. That there is one God, that Jesus is his only son who died on the cross for our sins and was resurrected from the grave, that the Holy Spirit comes to indwell every individual the moment that we give our life to Christ, and that the Bible is God's word to us, and that God works through the church. If we can agree on those five things, we're good to go. Now, I have opinions about a lot of things, okay? I have opinions about a lot of things, and some of those are pretty strong opinions, but those five are just core beliefs. So when things don't go just like we want them to go, that's when we need to be willing for the sake of others, we need to be willing to cross those barriers because of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. There's one last barrier that Jesus is going to cross. His disciples had gone in for food. He's there having this conversation with this lady. And in verse 27, he's willing to cross this relational barrier. He says, at this point, his disciples came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you do? What do you seek? Or why do you speak with her? One, from a human standpoint, one relational barrier that Jesus has to cross, what if his disciples, what are they going to think? 
Now, I know he's God and he knows exactly everything, but just from a human perspective, what are they going to do when they see me speaking with this woman? For you see, in Jesus' day, it was a social faux pas for a man to speak with a woman in public, even his wife, particularly this woman, because the reason that she's there at noon, remember it's hot, all the other ladies come in the morning or in the evening. Jesus in talking his conversation with this woman, we didn't go over this particular part of the conversation. He talks about her family life, you know, it wasn't one that was really honoring to God. And so that's the reason that she came at noon. She didn't want the scorn or the scowls of the other women in the community. And so she came at during the middle of the day when no one else was there. So what was it going to do to his reputation? What would his disciples do? Would they just leave and say, this is just too much for us. We're checking out, we're out of here. Check please. But he's willing to cross the barrier because Jesus is relational risky. In order to love others, we have to be willing to cross relational boundaries. Back a number of years ago, I had the opportunity and the privilege to help establish uh, in the church a, an equipping opportunity where people who wanted to be able to communicate their faith, to share how people can know Christ in a personal way, uh, that they would come and we met in a large group uh, setting. And then we'd, we'd do that for about an hour and equip uh, through that large group setting. And then we would usually go out in teams of three, and we would have opportunities to have conversations with people about their spiritual life and how they could know Christ personally. Well, it really went well, very well. And so some people came and said, look, we can't do this at night, but we would like to do it during the day. So we started meeting on Thursday mornings. And we would meet, large group setting, then we would uh, pair up or go in triads out. It was easy to talk to people in the evening time to find people to have conversations with, but during the daytime it was more problematic until one day someone in our group had a contact with a warden at a women's prison just outside of town. And so we went and met with the warden and the warden said, there's some ground rules here. One is that you can really only carry things in such as maybe a Bible or some uh, leaflets, uh, some informational material. You know, you really can't carry anything else in there. Secondly, um, you cannot ask these ladies the reason for their incarceration. It will usually come up in the course of the conversation, but just don't ask them the reason for their incarceration. Three, never give them your last name. And number four, never ever give them your home address. So we went. And it was rooms very similar to this room today. There was uh, concrete floors. The tables were bolted down to the floor. The chairs were bolted down to the floor. There's good reasons for that. And so the ladies lived in little pods off of this big room. And the guard would get on, he was like in a little cubicle up there. The guard would get on the microphone and he would go, all right, the guys from the church are here. Very warm, inviting kind of, you know, thing. I mean, just made you want to run out there, you know, and embrace us. <laughs> But the ladies filtered out there and we had some amazing conversations. I know some of you, Hillary has been in situations like that. Just some amazing conversations over the course of the weeks that we went. One particular week that we were there, uh, 
the people that were with me, we began a conversation with a young lady whose name was Naomi. And so Naomi, we began, you know, just casual conversation. And in that casual conversation, she said something about Brookhaven, Mississippi. Well, that's where I was raised. And so as, as we, we talked, uh, I said, well, I'm from Brookhaven, Mississippi. And I know I wasn't supposed to say that, but I said it anyway. And so she said, well, what's your last name? And I, I'm not supposed, but I did it. I said, Doremus. And she said, oh, Joe. And I said, no, I'm Jim. My younger brother is, is named Joe. And she had gone to school uh, with my younger brother, Joe. But she had an older brother, Edgar, who was a classmate of mine. Now, what you have to understand about Naomi and her family is that Naomi's uh, dad was an African-American pastor of an AME church there in this little small Mississippi town. And they had chosen to send their children to the white school. Now, as a parent, uh, as a grandparent, I can't imagine how difficult a decision that was, but they chose to do that. Uh, It wasn't until 1970, second semester, that uh, integration happened. But they were there, I guess, all the way, I I moved there in the seventh grade. I guess they were there all the way through primary, middle, and and high school. So we began to talk. And even though that Naomi grew up in the home of a pastor, is that she said she had never had a personal relationship with Jesus. And so that day, in that cold room, is that she became a Christ follower. She committed her life to Christ. I'm not sure exactly, we we encouraged her. We told her about some Bible studies going on in that pod. We told her about the worship services there within the prison. And about, I don't know, a week or so, maybe it's two or three weeks later, I received a letter. And this is what she wrote. Dear Jim Doremus and Dee, I guess Dee is the person who was with me that day. I really enjoyed you all that day that you came by. I hope I can see you all again someday. I'm writing to let you know that I have been moved to the MSU building on B Hall for medical reasons. I found out that I have HIV. I'll like for you all to continue to pray for me. I talked to my mom and son, and I told her that I have peace with Jesus now, and that I have eternal life, and that I have a sister and brother in Christ. She was proud to hear this. I will pray for you all and thank you for the card that you sent me. May God bless you all and happy holidays. Take care. Love your sister, Naomi. P.S. Edgar says hello. Friends, the reason that we cross boundaries because we love other people is for the sake of the gospel. It's not to be progressive. It's not to just be hip or chick or cool. It's for the sake of the gospel. In John chapter 4, we see what happened with Jesus and this lady. Verse 39, from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the savior of the world. The reason that Jesus 
It says early in that passage, he had to go through Samaria, not geographically, but for the spiritual transformation of this population of people. That's the reason that he had to go, because he knew what was going to happen. He knew what this lady was going to do and how she was going to draw other people. And for the same reason, we cross those barriers, whether they be racial or religious or relational. So my question this morning is, what is your barrier? Is there a racial barrier? Is there a religious barrier? Is there a relational barrier that you're not willing to cross? I didn't want to just leave us hanging this morning about, uh, with this idea of, well, this is what we need to do. But I just want to make three suggestions and just have time really just to list these as to how do we do that? We have a saying here at Ecclesia is that it's difficult to hate someone with whom you share good food. Well, I'm such a shallow individual, I need to have a pre-step to that, is that I probably need to pray that I could love that person enough to invite them to share some good food. So my first suggestion is to pray. Lord, I can't do this on my own. I need, to you, I need you to do it through me. The second suggestion is to place others first. Whoever that individual or whoever these individuals are, place them first. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than themselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus was willing to place us first. So he stepped out of heaven and stepped into our world so that he could die in our place. So pray for them, place others first. Lastly, listen. My tendency, I want to fix it, okay? Guys, you, you've sort of been there before maybe, okay? That you're supposed to be listening, but you're thinking, how do I fix this? I think in most situations, it's always good to listen because rather than trying to do something, maybe I need to hear something. And so as you have conversations with this person or with these individuals, is to listen. And we just might learn more than trying to fix something. The gospel is essentially that God loved us enough that Jesus was willing to step out of heaven and step into our world to die for us. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus crossed every barrier in order to show that he loved us for the sake of our spiritual transformation, the gospel. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your great love for us and how it was demonstrated on the cross by Jesus dying for us. 
And I thank you for your encouragement to us that we need to be willing to cross barriers as well for the love of people, for the sake of the gospel. So Father, I pray that as you place people in our path, Lord, help us to be known as people who love you and that we love others. I thank you that on that night, before Jesus gave his life, that he took the bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body. And his body was given for us because of his great love. And then he took the cup, and he said that this is the cup of the new covenant. Father, we thank you for his shed blood for the forgiveness of our sins, for his resurrection, and the fact that we can have a relationship with you today. So Father, I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.